0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the to uh, First Peter. First Peter. Um, now Carson just read the whole chapter of Ephesians two. Did that seem weird or awkward to anybody? It's okay to say yes. Fe- it probably feels a little weird and awkward to do that, right? But this this is something that um, wouldn't have been very awkward to early Christians or to the Israelites. Um, in the time of the Exodus and, and things like that. It was a very common practice for them to simply gather together and listen to Scripture being read aloud. The public reading of Scripture is a discipline that's been very um, formative, very transformational for the Christian community and the Jewish community through centuries and millennium. And so the Jews, they used to get together for feasts like weeks at a time almost and just listen to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible being read aloud. No explanation, no, um, no sermon. It was just, that's what they did. They gathered to hear scripture read aloud together. In the early church, we see glimpses of this. People got together to just have these letters that Paul and Peter and other people wrote to churches, have them read aloud to them. And then from that, the sermon developed every once in a while to explain what they had heard. But there's something unique, there's something profound, there's something deep to just sitting under a passage of Scripture being read to everybody. It's kind of like when we sing a song, right? We're all singing the same thing. We're all almost saying collectively as a community, yes, this song is true, this song defines me as a Christian. So when we... When we uh, read big chunks of scripture, we're trying to do that same thing. We're saying this story of scripture, this passage of scripture, defines all of us as followers of Christ in this room. And it's simply a practice that, um, that you will have to practice at. It's, it's an art of listening to passage, big chunks of passages being read to you and meditating over it. One of the, one of the things the Bible is is meditation literature. And you're just supposed to sit there and meditate over it. So that's, that's, that's the reason we did that. And yeah, it's probably a little awkward. It probably the first time it's like, when is he going to stop reading? But I, I want you guys to use that time very intentionally. I want you to practice the art and the discipline of meditation. Does that make sense? Because I think that will be critical for your, your Christian life. So um, I meant to explain that before, but I'll just explain it after. That's fine. So 1 Peter 1. We are in this series that we have called Hopeful Exiles. Um, We explained a little bit about what an exile was last week, someone who's been like ostracized from their home. And uh, that's how Peter addresses these Christians. He calls them elect exiles. And tonight we're going to talk about hope a little bit. We're going to talk about why these exiles are hopeful. And so that's where we get the name uh, for this series. Um, But we focused on last week three characteristics that Peter gave to those elect exiles talking about their salvation, Uh, we emphasized how this description of God's salvation defined them. Like they found their identity, they found their identity as a people in the story of God saving them. And so we ended with this this question to all of us, is, is that the story that defines me? Is that the story that defines you, the act of God saving you and rescuing you and redeeming you? Is that what identifies you? Is that what you're rooted in? So their, their identity was rooted in God saving them. And these next few verses that we're going to study, these follow this description by, by marking what our response to that should be. In light of God's salvation for you, in light of God saving you, how are you supposed to respond? What should your response be? The next section tells us. So as you look at the text in your Bible, and I really encourage you guys to actually bring your physical Bible when you come, um, just because I I like to um, have you guys looking at the passage. The passage 1, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, it's a new section. You see that big chunk of scripture, verses 3 through 12 in the English? That is one very long, complex sentence in the Greek, in the original language. So this big chunk of passage Verses 3 through 12, that's all one long run-on sentence that Peter's giving us. So it's kind of hard to to understand it a little bit and translate it a little bit. But we're going to break it up over the next few weeks. But this section, this is how we should understand this section of Scripture. This is teaching us to praise God for His saving work. So the main point of this section is for us to praise God. When we think about what our response to salvation should be, we should think praise. Praise should be that response. And so this long sentence, this big section, urges us to praise God. And it emphasizes three things, okay? This is the, the three things that it emphasizes in this section. Number one, it emphasizes our new beginning. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. It, secondly, it talks about our joy in suffering. Who in here enjoys to suffer? Yeah. Weird, okay? Watch out for those people, okay? But no, there's this rich understanding of the Christian life that we can actually have joy in suffering. Not enjoy suffering, but have joy in suffering. Um, Thirdly, uh, we see the privilege of revelation. We're going to talk about how we're part, if we're we're Christians, we're part of a larger story that's already been at work. And we have this privilege of revelation. But we're going to just hone in on our new beginning. Our new beginning. This is one reason that we should praise God. We have a new beginning in Jesus. As Christians, you have a new beginning. The passage we read tonight, Ephesians 2, we were talking about it as a band before. There is this big description of you being dead in your sin, being enslaved to sin, being children of wrath, but God. And what that, those two words mean is that God rewrites your story. God has put you in a new story. So we have a new beginning in Jesus. Let's look at the text and uh, then dive into it. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Man, this is a good passage. This is one, if you are able to um, write it on a sticky note, put it on your mirror. This is a fantastic passage. It's something that we're going to dive into. A lot of good stuff here, and uh, we've got time. But let me pray for us. Just ask God's blessing on this time, not to distract us, to, to allow us to focus in, okay? God, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the moment just to pause and to pour over your scripture, the pages of scripture, God. I pray that they would be real to us, that we would see Jesus in them, and that Jesus would transform us from them. So God, limit distractions, and may your spirit work work mightily in the hearts of these students and me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've already noticed here, the main teaching of this big section is for us to praise God, and that's what this section leads off with. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Saying blessed be the name or blessed be God is a way of saying praise God. It's a command to say praise God. So uh, um, another important thing here is we're not just simply talking about, when you hear praise, what do you think of? Think of singing? Think of dancing maybe? I heard um, Pastor Mark uh, at the barbecue. Is anyone at the barbecue? Just a few of you. They called our our uh, worship team a praise team, and I thought that was interesting. I never heard it called a praise team. But when I, because when I think of praise team, I'm thinking of flags, dancers. Does anyone come? Anyone know a church service like that where there's like flags and dancers? Anyone ever been to one of those? Oh man, you're missing out. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> they are a lot of fun. But oftentimes they're called a praise team. So sometimes I have that connection in my head, like praise team, dancers and flags singing worship music to Jesus. But that's not what he's talking about. Praise is not simply music, or it's not simply, you know, singing and dancing. Praise is proclaiming the goodness and greatness of God. That's what he's saying, is when you say you are to praise God, you are supposed to proclaim the goodness and the greatness of God with not only your words, but with how you act, with your thought life, with your interactions with other people. You are supposed to proclaim the goodness and the greatness of God. So the question then becomes, why? Why should we praise God? Turn this question around on yourself. Think about it personally. Why do you praise God? Do you praise God because you feel like you're supposed to? Do you praise God because it makes you feel good? Do you praise God because it soothes your guilt? Do you praise God because everyone else in the room is doing it? No, really, like, why do you praise God? Think about that. I'm not asking for the right answer. I'm asking for your answer, right? Why do you praise God? Why do I praise God? Do I do it out of a sense of just feeling good and folding in with the Bible Belt culture? Or do I do it because I've radically been changed by an encounter with Jesus? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. And whatever your answer to the question may be, Peter's answer is, the reason we praise God is because we've had a radical encounter of salvation in Jesus. And this is what we're going to see. First thing, why should God be be praised? God should be praised because God has made us born again according to his great mercy. If we're looking for a reason to praise God, this is the one Peter gives us. God has made us to be born again according to his great mercy. So we should praise God because God's goodness has drawn us to himself, brought us into the family of God. We do not praise God because it's convenient, because it boosts our self-esteem, because it's easy or it's comfortable. We praise God because he has saved us. He has changed us. Because of his mercy, he has caused us to be born again. This means that as a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you always have a reason to praise God. This means you can praise God through the tears. You can praise God through the heartache. You can praise God through the confusion. You can praise God when everything doesn't seem to be lining up in your life. When everything seems to be falling apart, you can praise God because you've had an encounter with God's salvation in Jesus. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you always have a reason to praise God. And so this this leads us to consider this. If we find it difficult to praise God... Perhaps we have not really had an encounter with God's salvation. If we find it difficult to praise God, we have to consider this. Maybe, maybe I've not had an encounter with God's salvation. Maybe I've, I don't know Jesus in this way. Or maybe I'm not remembering Jesus in this way. Or I'm not fixing my eyes on Jesus in this way. So we have to consider that. And also, don't pass over the language here, right? Right? God has caused us to be born again according to His great mercy. So we see that the emphasis, right, is not on us, it's on who? God. God has caused this. God, because of His mercy, has brought us salvation. And we constantly need to be reminded of that. Because we're not saved by our own merits, we're saved by God's mercy. We're not saved by our own goodness, we're saved by God's grace. And if you think about this language of being born... Like, how much credit can you take for being born? Not very much. You had no control over you being born. You had no, no command in you being born. And that's the language that Peter and Paul and even Jesus himself in John chapter 3. He talks about being born again because this is an act of God. You. You. In, uh, in of yourself you in and of yourself cannot cause yourself to be born. so have you guys ever encountered someone who takes credit for something they had nothing to do with this obnoxious person <laughs> anyway maybe some of us are <laughs> in has <laughs> got a, uh, an idea um, or has anyone like ever complimented you for your name like you had no control over your name unless you're you change your name at some point? But like people are like Taylor, oh, I, I like your name. I had nothing to do with that. I can't take credit for that. Some even sometimes when people talk about like, oh, I like your voice. I'm like, No control over that. Don't have any control over that one. Um, but does anyone know who Nancy Stoffer is? Nancy Stoffer. She wrote a little book you might have heard heard of called Larry Potter. Sound familiar? She wrote a book called Larry Potter, and and she, she ended up taking J.K. Rowling to court because um, she was going to claim that J.K. Rowling stole her ideas of Larry Potter and wrote the series Harry Potter. Now, it turns out that Nancy was a liar, and <laughs> she did not write Larry Potter before Harry Potter. Um, so she ended up getting fined $50,000, which is a which is a good, good principle for us. Whenever we try to take credit for something that's not ours, it usually backfires on you. But as Christians, we don't earn our salvation, so we should never seek to take credit for it. And in doing so, it will probably backfire on us. Meaning, when you ask people to look to you as an example of Jesus, you're a bad example of Jesus in and of your own strength. It will backfire on you. You'll be shown to be a hypocrite or a liar at some point. So as Christians, we are simply supposed to be mirrors that reflect Jesus. We want God and Jesus to get all the credit, all, what, all the glory that he deserves for saving us. So we've said this in here before. Last week, you're not a Christian because you're smarter than your friends or because you know all the rules and they don't. Know that you're saved because of God's mercy and his grace. So we do not boast in that. Now, the next thing that we see is, or the next kind of natural question is, what are the results of being born again? So think about one of the major basic ways of thinking of being born that conjures up this image of a new journey, a new beginning, a new path. It's not an end point. It's a beginning point, right? Birth is a new beginning. So we must ask, what is that new beginning? What is that new path, that new journey? What does that look like? And that's what we see Peter getting to here. So um, this, this is a secure future reality. I forgot what I wrote there. What are we born into? Number one, a living hope. We see that in the next part of the por- or the next part of the passage. The first thing he says that we are born into is a living hope. So uh, as opposed to a dead hope. We have a living hope. What does he mean by that? What does he mean that we have a living hope? And we get a clue in the passage because he links this to the resurrection of Jesus. So we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. You guys get that? We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. This means that our hope is not simply some abstract good circumstance. It's not just pleasures forevermore. Your hope is not simply happiness. Your hope is Jesus. Your hope should be rooted in Jesus. Not simply goodness or happiness in some abstract way. It should be in the person of Jesus. So the Christian hope is in Jesus. And in him, all our happiness, all our dreams, desires, wishes, and pleasure it's, is found. So it's because Jesus is our greatest treasure. It's because Jesus is what we want That our hope includes us taking hold of our greatest treasure. So the the simple thing to see here is that we have a living hope because Jesus is our hope. And as Christians, that's what we look forward to, being made like Jesus. The Christian hope is that God will make us like Jesus, that he will raise us to life in the same way he raised Jesus to life. That's what we look forward to. That's the future reality we have been born into as followers of Jesus. Second thing is an imperishable inheritance. So Peter says we've been born into a new inheritance. Now that we've been adopted into the family of God, we are now going to be given an inheritance as a new member of the family. Again, Peter's emphasizing that we're born into something, a new new community. We have a new journey to live. Has anyone received an inheritance in here? Anyone? No one? No one's received an inheritance? Um, There's a notable story about a woman named Leona Helmsley. Anyone know Leona Helmsley? No? Well, she was um, nicknamed the Queen of Mean. That's just a side fact. But she died and left all of, well, not all of her inheritance, most of her $12 million to her dog, Trouble. So she left her dog $12 million. (laughs) That was her inheritance. Yeah, she did have kids that she snubbed out of the will. But gave her d- Now, the courts came in, they were like, you can't give all this money to a dog, but they still let the dog keep $2 million. So there's a dog, actually, I think the dog died. I don't know who inherited the dog's inheritance, maybe some cats, some other dogs, I don't know. But here's, here's, the, here's kind of the principle in that, right, is you give your inheritance to members of your family. And this lady was fully convinced that her dog Trouble, that was the dog's name, her dog Trouble was a member of her family, so much so that she gave a large inheritance to her dog. Um, Stephanie actually has her wedding ring is part of my inheritance from my great-grandmother. Actually, I think it was probably my sister's inheritance that my grandmother then gave to me. But that's what she's actually wearing on her finger. And I think it's a great symbol my grandmother, when I was looking to um, ask Stephanie to marry me, I had no money. So um, I had no ring, but my grandma offered up this, this ring that she's, she's wearing. And I, I kind of see it as this great symbol of my grandma saying, yes, we're going to welcome Steph into the family because I'll include her in your inheritance type of thing. Um, now, the other thing about this ring was it was not in the best condition First of all, my great-grandmother had humongous hands. <laughs> like, what was it, like a size 12? Yeah, it was a size 12, which I don't know if, you know, like, that's bigger than my hands. And so we had to get it cut down a lot. It was also in some weird color, and so we had to get it dipped in platinum, and there were some loose diamonds and things like that. But this this ring was not in the best condition, let's say that. The inher- inheritance wasn't in the best condition. But what Peter says is the, the characteristics of this inheritance that we receive in Christ is imperishable, it's undefiled, and there's one more, um, unfading, right? In the Greek text that the Bible is written in, he uses three words that all start with the letter alpha. And he's talking about, he's using alliteration just to emphasize that this inheritance is eternal, it will never perish, it cannot spoil, and it will never fade. So the inheritance we receive as Christians is an eternal inheritance. What he's getting at here is eternal life. We have eternal life because we've been brought into a, a new beginning with Jesus. You have a great, imper- un unhin- undefiled, imperishable inheritance in Jesus. Um, so more importantly, as we look at, as we link our hope with Jesus, right? We see that our living hope is Jesus. We also understand that Jesus is our inheritance. We inherit Jesus. We get to inherit him as we put on his image day in and day out. And when at the end time, at the day of glory, we will be clothed like Jesus. So that is our inheritance. Again, So in both of these images, and what, what we're looking forward to, I just want to hit this home. What we're looking forward to as Christians is Jesus. We're not simply using Jesus to get everything we want. We're not simply using Jesus to be happy in the things that we want and we need. As Christians, we're looking forward to Jesus because he is all that we want. He is all that we need. It's so important, guys, because we have been raised in a culture where we use Jesus to get what we want rather than training our wants to be Jesus. And that's so important. If you don't want Jesus— Why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you call yourself a follower of Jesus? So that's our hope. Our hope is Jesus. We have a living hope, um, an imperishable inheritance, and that's Jesus. So we have a, a great hope, a fantastic future. And seeing that we have a new beginning in Jesus, we know we have a new destination. And continuing this emphasis, Peter gives us the ultimate assurance. Question number three What is the assurance of our future? It's like, okay, Peter, you talk about this amazing future that's set up for me. Um, I don't do good at things. I don't finish things well, right? So how how are you going to assure me that this is my future? And this is what Peter says. He says, God is guarding our future by his power, which is working through faith. So we have a great hope and a, a fantastic future, but the one who guarantees this hope for us is even greater. The one who guarantees and assures us of this future is even greater. Peter writes that this hope is being kept in heaven for you. God and his power and his reign and authority is keeping it for you and securing it. And how secure is it? Peter says that God's power, which is being, which is working through faith, is holding it for you. So, okay, the natural thing is, okay, if God's, God is the one who's guarding this, then I can coast. This is awesome. I, I believe Jesus, I'll follow Jesus, and uh, I'll just continue in doing what I want to do with my life. Right? That's such so, a misunderstanding of what Peter is saying here. If you're on a new journey and a new path, then you should seek the things of Jesus. But also notice how God's power works. Okay? This is really, really important. God guards our future. God works his power through our faith. God empowers us to look forward to our future by enlivening enlivening us, strengthening us with faith. So if you're looking forward to Jesus and you want God's power to sustain you in that, he's going to do that by giving you faith and strengthening you with faith. So if you're seeking... Uh, the future that's been described here, Peter says we will attain that. We will receive that by faith. That's how God's power will work in you to receive this new future, this new destiny, is Him giving you faith. So this is kind of the final thought, the sum up of this passage. God is to be praised because in His mercy... He caused believers to be born again to a living hope and an imperishable inheritance which he is guarding by his power. If you were to summarize verses 3 through 5, this is how you would do it. But the closing question is how we take this and apply it to ourselves. In light of this, we must ask ourselves, am I living by faith today with confidence in the power of God to make me like Jesus? Because that's what Peter's getting at here. He's saying, this is your end game. This is where you're headed if you're a follower of Jesus. Stand firm. Keep going. Keep pressing on. Because God is empowering you by having faith today. We've talked about this before with our D-Now series. But faith is called the substance of our hope. So we actually live out our future reality. We live out where we are destined to be today, and that's what faith is. Faith takes where you'll be in a thousand years and brings it into the present by you living like Jesus today. So am I living by faith today means am I living like Jesus today? Am I loving like Jesus today? And here's your confidence in that. It's not in your own strength and in your own power. It is in the power of God. Guys, the most radical message of Jesus and Christianity is that our greatest act is dependence and surrender. That's the greatest thing you can do for your faith is surrender to God. Depend on God. God will allow you to go through some really difficult times in your own strength. But when you depend on Him, He begins to work. He begins to work and, and continue to drive you to the point of being more and more like Jesus. So this is our challenge for today, living by faith in the confidence of God to be more and more like Jesus.